we cannot dispossess ourselves of the history from which we are born, the history from which we have lived. So whatever you, for example, bring into your marriage, whatever your wife brings into her marriage, you are a product of your history. Whether she, you, together or separately, you look at that may or may not be a product of how much work there is to do, but you can't take the history out of the person who's arrived here today. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. I am delighted you are here for another fascinating conversation this week with Deborah Kaplan. Before we get into this conversation, if you can do me a favor and head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review if you have been enjoying these conversations. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. I'm glad you stopped by. On today's episode called Money, Sex, and Power, Navigating Financial Intimacy in Relationships, we created this episode aimed at helping couples and individuals overcome the challenges of financial infidelity, a term that we discuss in this episode with Deborah. We also discuss how financial conflict in relationships is normal, and often we don't observe that we have financial conflict because we label it as something wrong with us when really it is quite normal. And I appreciate how Deborah explains this in more detail. So our guest, Deborah, she's a fascinating individual. Deb is a therapist who specializes in helping individuals overcome addiction, relationship struggles, and unresolved traumatic stress. Deb is an expert in addressing sexual compulsivity and sex addiction, emotional sexual affairs, and financial intimacy in couples and marriages. She provides compassionate and culturally sensitive care for all clients. And you sense this compassion on the conversation today. This conversation weaves in and out understanding the complexities of financial intimacy to learning how to merge individual and often complicated relationships with money in a functional manner. Deb will help guide us on a journey to financial intimacy. So whether you're struggling with financial conflict in your relationship or looking for ways to improve your relationship with money, sex, and power, this episode will definitely provide you with some insights and tremendous amount of value. Deb is also the author of two incredible books, The Battle of Titans, Mastering the Forces of Sex, Money, and Power in Relationships, and For Love and Money, Exploring Sexual and Financial Betrayal in Relationships. As she discusses today, her newest book with a guest of ours, Rick Kaler, called Coupleship Inc., is set to be released in approximately mid-February to March of 2023. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Deborah Kaplan.
Deb, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. I'm excited to finally be here since we tried to get this together and, and organize for so long. I'm excited to have you on as well. I was just rambling away before we recorded and it was about time we started recording. So you have a fascinating um, lived experience, third book coming out, two other books, you have a private practice, so many different areas. If we could rewind the time back to the 1980s when you were working on Wall Street. And my question is, as you reflect back on your experience working on Wall Street in the 80s, I assume it's a high pressure, competitive environment. I would presume there's some power and control floating around the air. I've heard you talk about your relationship with your father in your books. So my question is, how did your relationship with your father, if at all, influence your decision to pursue a career in finance and the drive you had to succeed within that career? It's a long, circuitous route, but let me back up for a bit. I was on Wall Street in the, through the 90s. <clears throat> oh, sorry. It began in the 80s as well, but it, it culminated and finished up in the 90s. And the experiences that I wrote about that showed up in Battle of the Titans, that was the second book, I wrote about and spoke to my relationship and the dynamic with my dad in that book. Because to your point and the question, my relationship with the family system was rather interesting. I was in many ways my father's confidant and partner in crime, and I was my mother's mother. And when I say partner in crime, what I mean is that I took on a very parentified role in the family system with him, and I became an adult, really, as a young adolescent and took on the adult role of emotional parent and partner, if you will, with my dad. That elevated my status, if one could say that, from just not being a child now to being a falsely empowered young adult. And when I say falsely empowered, what I mean is that I carried a responsibility and an emotional burden that most kids who are just children in the family system don't carry. For better or for worse, I carried that well. It had its detriments, and I worked through those over many years of therapy and insight and, and growth, spiritual growth. But in the ways that I was falsely empowered, I also learned to hold my own in landscapes that were very power and control oriented. And I gravitated ultimately to finance and I've worked in the junk bond sector of the world. And that was more early days in the eighties. I eventually found my way into the commodity markets and I was a commodity option. So I was a option trader in the pits when the pits were active, I was trading commodity options and that is a really intense world, although I miss it terribly and it doesn't exist. The open outcry system is no longer with us. The last of them went the way in Chicago. But it was very fundamental to how I was able to hold my own, a strong sense of self. I'm a New Yorker. So add all of that, the nature and the nurture aspect into who I became and the worlds in which I ultimately gravitated for work. Thank you so much for that answer. At the top, you talked about the family systems. We've talked quite a few times about family systems on this podcast, but can you give a, a, a brief overview of the interplay of a family systems and just how the different roles all play together to create this system? And I guess specifically how there's really all participants are part of that system. 
Yeah, without delving too much into the psychology and the developmental aspects of the family system, but all of us exist within a system. We're in a relationship to others. We may be in a relationship to a romantic partner. We may be a parent. We may be a child. We may be both. We may be siblings. And so we all exist within a system. And the family system has a parent or two parents, a caregiver. One may be more in the caregiver role than the other. So assuming there are two parents and assuming there are children, the family system is the unit in which that family system exists. There could be an extended family as well, an extended family member. In a healthy dynamic, the parent, adult parent, will be the individual, and both parents, if there are two, will be the individuals who are responsible financially, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually and sexually for the development and healthy growth of children within that system. And the child's role is to grow up in that system and in the best of all worlds, be protected and be empowered in a healthy, self-esteemed way and also protected until the child becomes a young individual, a young adult, and then eventually individuates out into the world as their own sense of self, but always remains within the system because of who they are when they're born and and what system and family they're born into, or should I say raised in. You know, the last part of there where you said that they're they're protected, they grow as healthy self-esteem, you know, they, they can concentrate on being a child. As you explained in your story and many other stories, isn't always the case. Uh, you talked about how you were doing parenting role as a child. And, and the words you used was a falsely empowered as you went through that system. And then you show up on, on Wall Street and many other people the same way. We show up very competent on the outside. This false self appears. I mean, from the outsiders, we might see, wow, this, this Deb or this whomever is really competent and successful. Can you talk about the impacts that's going on inside of us when we just continuously show up at that false self? Yeah, there's a difference between false self and falsely empowered. The two are not the same thing. I would say that I was falsely empowered in the family growing up, but through a lot of work, I learned to not only be congruent with what the world saw and what I showed the world and how I felt internally, but that took work. If children who become adults grow up in the world and have to put on a sense of strength, confidence, self-esteem, but don't inwardly feel that way, there's a disconnect. There's that incongruence, right? Through therapy, through development, through work, those two worlds come together. In other words, who you see, the Deb you see on the outside is congruent with Mm. the Deb I feel I am on the inside. And in my case, that is true. Growing up falsely empowered had its impact in relationships, but not in the way that it was a dysfunctional self. It was the sense of how I was overly confident in what I was perhaps capable of. Now, the world will smack back, right? All of us as little kids, you know, I can do that. I can, you know, in the sandbox, I can do whatever. And eventually we learn, you know, we have to play nice in the sandbox, both proverbially and literally. <laughs> and we learn our place. We we find our place 
in our, in our sense of self in the world, I gravitated to positions of strength, to positions of power. I traded for companies as well as I traded for myself on Wall Street. And I liked that sense of responsibility, both in the role of if I was a day trader, as they used to be called, I was trading for others and then eventually trading off the floor. But that sense of responsibility and that sense of power, trading on Wall Street takes a lot of conviction. There are others in in the world that you and I operate in that we know of other female traders. And there aren't few, there are a few of us, but the women that I have met that are female traders recognize that because there are fewer females than males, we have to stake our claim in the world. And I did. And I didn't have a problem doing that because I was raised in an environment where that sense of empowered self was valued and it was nurtured. It was overly nurtured. But the benefit of that was that I had a sense of who I am and that I could hold my own. The way you were showing up, it was in a way, like like you're saying, it, there's there's benefit to that. There's a the sense of knowing who you are, but there's also the other side of it. I believe it was in your book for Love and Money where you quoted, I believe her name was Vicky, when when you guys started chatting and she said that, Deborah, your heart wasn't open and mine was. Is that a defense mechanism at some point when you're showing up where your heart's closed and you're defending what's happening underneath? Like when you show up on Wall Street and really convicted and really trying to show your worth. Is that a defense mechanism? Is that really hiding that closed heart? I don't think it would show up on Wall Street, that quote, and boy, you did a dive into the book. <laughs> That's awesome. That, I really appreciate that. Vicky's response or statement to me was in regards to personal relationships. Mm. That I was well fit to work in the professional world on Wall Street. The defense was in vulnerability in personal relationships. Working in Wall Street, there's no room for emotion. It's not personal, it's business, right? That's a term we hear that people repeat. You know, this isn't personal when you're fired. Sometimes it Mm -hmm, is actually, mm -hmm. but it's not personal when in the realm of business, someone may say, you know, I don't want to do business with you or this doesn't work or you're, we don't like your product or we're going to go in a different direction. It may not be personal, it's business. Relationships, romantic relationships are personal. The invulnerability of an individual, or in the case where Vicky said to me, you know, your heart wasn't open, your mind was, I needed to learn to be vulnerable in relationship. And having been, you know, grown up as that parentified child, there wasn't room for vulnerability because I was too busy doing the heavy lifting of being an adult. And so I kind of did a leap over that I had to go back and revisit what it meant to be vulnerable and allow my feelings to come to the surface. And that was all of the deep personal work that I've done over the years. When I read that quote, it spoke to me because... Um, How so? I, well, I don't want to turn this on myself, <laughs> but for years, I, you know, I, I'm most fortunate that I had a, a functional childhood. My parents got along. They still do. And so I had this story that I was, you know, I was fine. Like everything was good. I often heard that, oh, Sean, you're busy. You're busy. You're doing so many things. And I wore that like with a badge of honor because I was like, you bet I'm busy. And I took a job in finance and I really talked a lot about money and liked money. My wife kept saying, 
you know, you're so busy. You're juggling so many different things. And I was like, what do you, why don't you get busy? And it would, it would bother me. But that quote spoke to me because in hindsight now, I realized that I had a closed heart. And here I am thinking that everything's, you know, go fix yourself. Like, go, go work on your own. I'm good here. Like, I'm just working day to night and totally unaware that I'm having this, like living this unexamined life. I didn't know that. And the more I opened up my heart to like lean into myself, yeah, just just the perspective has changed on communication with my wife. Even my relationship with money, I realized, and I'll, I'll end here, but I was a super shy kid and I attached the meaning to money was like, people said, hey, Sean, nice job. Or you got a pay raise, good for you. And like my little inner child was like, yeah, people that recognize you. Right, now I'm getting the, I'm getting yeah. the acknowledgement and the the goods, you know, the mm -hmm. um, seen in that way. And, and don't you dare and don't come take after me, my me. wife. Yeah. yeah and exactly. what I didn't realize is, I'm going to end here, is that I was controlling so much without actually intentionally controlling the, the conversations around money. And the more I opened up my heart, I realized, hey, my wife had her own story about control of a female voice, and I was silencing that. So that's why that quote spoke to me. And I'm going to turn it over to you as we transition into this idea of power, control, dynamics within money and relationships. Uh, it's a great segue. And it's so normal and natural and pervasive because when we grow up, you know, we learn, all of us want to be seen and witnessed. Every single human being, it's a, it's a part of the human attachment system. And if we're seen in a certain way and we get feedback that seems to be comfortable and affirming, you know, it's it's kind of like the person who goes to what used to be casinos. Now we don't need a casino. We have it on our phone. But to someone who makes a win in gambling and like, wow, that that felt really good. It's the dopaminergic rewards circuitry going on in our bodies and our mind and our brains where we get to go, oh my God, I like the way that feels. I want more of that, right? That addictive to feeling good and that positive feedback loop. In power and control, knowing that a sense of external gratification, and this is the work I do a lot with attachment and sex and money, whether it's external gratification as a result of a relationship or sexual conquest or transactional sex or money or a job, those are aspects of external reward that empower us falsely, right? Because it's a constant chase. It's not sustainable. We can't just keep trying to get that external reward, although some people will try. And again, it's not sustainable. It has its end point at the point at which it cannot be replicated. And we start recognizing, oh my God, you know, I'm not getting that acknowledgement. I'm not getting that hit. I need more of the same thing or I need more to get the same reward. And that's the addictive chase. You know, and I find this so fascinating because as a financial planner, I was completely unaware of these, these silent forces happening in relationships before I started diving in to do my own work. In a way, as financial planners, when we're unaware of that, we're almost fueling those external gratifications by being like, you know what? Okay, if you just tweak your savings, here's like a spreadsheet that's going to show you you're going to have this much money. And like, and I guess not to the fault of our own until we do some work, we're, but we're almost fueling those external gratifications in a sense, because we, we try to fix the issues by making their financial plan look better. 
certainly a person in the financial realm, such as a planner, advisor, that is the job. And it may be, you know, the world of financial therapy, which brings together the the financial and the clinical to no fault of any professional. That is the aspect of why one would come to a planner to maximize profit, to maximize savings, resources, financial stability. And there are aspects to your job, to your role that you wouldn't see because you don't see what goes on behind the scenes mm-hmm. in and behind closed doors and with a couple and how I'm going to introduce power. You and I were talking about this before, how one tweak of the coupleship and energy in one direction has a result that you don't get to witness because that's the dance of a couple mm-hmm. outside the realm of finance. Yeah. And, and, I, I guess I should be a little gentle with the financial planners because I am one. Uh, not that, we, <laughs> not that we, we we should, but I guess it's now I think it's we're becoming more aware as an industry, as the financial therapy associations coming along, that we can start to realize that, hey, we have a potential to just maybe recognize that, hey, I, you know, here's a financial therapist or a psychologist that we can make referrals out. I think we're as planners, that's an opportunity us to lean into if 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 we so choose. For sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Financial planners, advisors, and so forth have um, referred their client to me. And I feel blessed to be able, while I don't work in financial planning and I tell people, do not bring me your spreadsheets and do not bring me your statements because I'm not going to read them. It's outside. I mean, I I do have that capacity and that capability, but I don't use it. I stay in the realm of the clinical. What I do have is a beautiful lens into those more nuanced dynamics in the marriage that someone such as yourself in the role of planner does not get to witness. Mm-hmm. And so with that lens... Can you speak to the nuances that that you tend to see? And I don't want to make a blanket statement. Every coupleship has the same power and control issues in around money or sex. But what are the patterns that you start to see? And I think I want to preface this. Sometimes people think, and I I don't know if this is born out of defensiveness, is like, no, 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 that's not us. That's not us. And so can you, in a way, normalize that it's okay if this is happening? And, And yeah, just speak to how that power and control shows up in relationships. In the work I do, and I do a lot of financial intensives, uh, I work online, financial intensives are in my office. And to your very exquisite point that couples will say, no, we don't do this, but almost all couples see themselves in one way or another because every couple has a dance. It may not look like the next couple, but it's their own dance. And we're all human. While One couple, and I'm going to start the very basic, the very general, one of the partners in a marriage or a committed relationship, one may want to save more and one may want to spend more. One may want to retire early. One may not want to retire for another 10 years, 20 years. There's always going to be differences. And that is never a problem. Of course, there are going to be differences. It's how are those differences or conflicts negotiated? That's the power dynamic of couples that I talk about in Battle of the Titans, wherein there may be a tug or a push-pull, but the fact that there are differences is very normal. It's very healthy, in fact. A couple that has no differences probably has a very, we have parallel lives, 
we get along well, but it's very maybe less interactive and more parallel play versus the couple that really cannot seem to get on the same page. But what you and I both recognize, and I hope the listener and those who are watching will recognize, is that the fact that they may have a difference is way okay. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about what really are you, the couple, arguing about? Because no one argues about money. We argue Mm -hmm. about the meaning of money. Mm -hmm. We're not arguing about retirement. We're arguing about what's at stake here. What is it that the person who wants to wait and doesn't want to retire, what is that about? No one's going to work into their 90s. Most people don't. Some do. But the fact is a couple are arguing about something that are the hidden drivers, the emotional drivers underneath what the conflict is about. And my co-author, Rick Taylor, and I have this new book coming out, which we are very excited about because we speak to the many different levels of conflict and how to resolve them to get toward financial intimacy. And the book that's coming out in the next couple of months, Coupleship Inc., speaks to the very broad and depth ways in which couples can resolve their conflicts. Thank you. And we've had Rick Rick on a couple of times in the podcast. So what a wonderful collaboration. Yeah. Um, Oh, I'm very excited. Yeah. So your comment in around some people might want to save more, some people might want to retire earlier, in a way, from my perspective, surface level, because underneath, to your point, there's more control and power underneath. Yeah. What, if anything at all, do we risk by not diving into ourselves to open up that heart like you did when we're in this coupleship example? So for I'm going to speak, make this a little more tangible. So like for me, I thought the problem was, is my wife didn't understand financial planning and she didn't understand what it took to retire. And I had to convince her how and why we need to save more. It wasn't until I started to open up my heart to realize that, wait, if I want to have some resolution or some some rational conversations in and around money, I need to look at why I'm being so defensive and reactive to when she doesn't want to save or do what I want to do. So my question is is around, can couples get to that relational, functional conversations in money without doing work on themselves before looking at the coupleship? The answer is yes and no. To what degree will that insight either help grow the intimacy in a relationship or not depends on how curious partners are about their about each other. So for example, you mentioned that you wanted your wife to have a better understanding of what it was to save and to understand finances and so forth. Being curious about what it is that is at the heart of the disagreement or the conflict or the inability to come to to an agreement with each other is about what's going on for you, hun? What's going on or can you share with me? what is happening versus the reactive nature, which often couples get to before they're able to stop, put down their weapons, if you will, and then say, all right, like what's going on? The curiosity often comes with, I'm not going to lose anything. I'm not going to have to give up of myself. No one's going to take something from me. And I'm not going to lose my power here if I can just stop and say, look, I don't want to retire or I do want to retire. Before couples get to that point, though, 
what often happens is it becomes a very covert and or implicit push-pull of, you're going to do that over there. I'm just going to do my thing over mm-hmm. You're going to work long hours. I've asked you to stop working long hours and be home with the family. I'm just going to spend over here. I'm just going to start doing my own thing over here. And inevitably, it does create a divide because it's a divide of resentment. It may not be talked about. It may not be out in the open, but there is a resentful retaliation of, I've asked you to work less. You don't want to do that. Well, the spoils of this dynamic, I get to spend more, or I'm going to start saving in my own account here because there is the lack of communication and trust that is now getting eroded in very subtle ways in this coupleship. Thank you. That was that was what I was attempting without getting the word though properly of like, it seems like the surface level savings is the, the immediate thing we need to focus on, but that, more, that erosion, obvious. more obvious, but that erosion of trust, the coupleship of resentment, I think is something that for everyone listening is worth leaning into just to with the curiosity lens to say, hey, whoa, I want to aspire for a the financial intimacy, to use your words from the book. Can you explain? I mean, we can make an assumption financial intimacy, but from your lens as the author of the the book, what is financial intimacy and what does it look like for couples? Financial intimacy is the ability and the connection to have an understanding about what money means to each other. And that we don't have to have the same agreement. We don't have to have the same beliefs or behaviors, but that we are willing to work together because we are not only just a romantic partnership, we are a business partnership. Couples come together and they think, yeah, we are a wonderful romantic partnership. We get along, we love each other, but our emotional commitment is also probably one of the most important financial agreements and commitments we make in our life. And as a couple comes together, they're creating a very important and powerful company. Mm -hmm. It's called Coupleship Inc. It's us. Mm -hmm. And so when I have partners or, you know, a, a, a coupleship where one is doing all the spending or creating these bank accounts or these secret savings accounts because she, they, or he doesn't trust the other I say to them, look, where do you think this money's coming from? It's it's not somebody else's money. It's your money. And better you preserve what you have as a relationship and talk about where your conflict is and become more intimate and create that intimacy, which is vulnerability and awareness, understanding, than to create the retaliation and erode your savings and any money you have as resource. So to get to that level, like if if our goal, our aspirational goal is financial intimacy, I really like, and I like how you defined in intimacy at the end there. I forget the exact vulnerability. Vulnerability um, and emotional and financial connectedness. Yes. We don't have to think the same way. We don't have to act the same way. But if I can be curious about and work with and 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 hear what it is that is your financial and emotional vulnerabilities... Now we're creating intimacy. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to defend our positions. We're coming, we're looking to come together. This aspirational goal, and I say aspirational because I don't think we ever fully arrived there. To your point earlier, we're human. In order to reduce the amount of defending we do or deflecting, 
to get to this coupleship ink in a functional way. Earlier, we talked about your your family origin story. We talked about, is it important to go into to our own work and looking at the past to get to the functional self now? And you said, yes and no, kind of. Before we were recording, we talked about Pia Melody's work, and I believe it's her and who does a lot of the family of origin work. When we start relating like the Klontz's work on the money scripts and our money history, at this point, when, when couples are not defending that they have some control and power issues, what value do you see in doing the, the family of origin work in order for us to start to make, or make sense of, oh, that's why I do this, or that's why I feel this way around money? I'll tie it together with part of the question that you said, Does it, is it as important that we each do our individual work or can mm-hmm. a couple work and make some progress without the individual work as well? And I would say that some coupleships can do this. We each, however, bring our history into a relationship. We have our own developmental story. We have our own meaning and money scripts around behaviors, around what money means, what work means. Yes, a couple can do this work because our book, Coupleship Inc., is really what that's Mm -hmm. about. We cannot, however, sidestep what we bring with us. And part of the journey, whether we do it with another individual, whether we do it within the context of the coupleship, we cannot dispossess ourselves of the history from which we are born, the history from which we have lived. So whatever you, for example, bring into your marriage, whatever your wife brings into her marriage, you are a product of your history. Whether she, you, together or separately, you look at that may or may not be a product of how much work there is to do, but you can't take the history out of the person Mm -hmm. who's arrived here today. Because as I tell people in my office, that little boy, that little girl didn't run off to join the circus and they've become someone else. They're all grown up. They're you. And so it's not another person. It is us. And therefore in Coupleship Inc., we really invite the coupleship to look inward in some of the exercises we provide and in in the work that we provide in the book to look at our own individual past through doing a trauma egg, an inventory, looking at our money scripts And then asking your partner to share with you and you to share with your partner so that they are informed. They may not have an awareness of some of the history that provides you with your beliefs today. So for example, if I say, I refuse to stop working and my partner says, well, don't you ever want to retire? I want to retire in in five years and you don't ever want to retire and be with me. You must not love me. Well, if I've never explained to my partner, well, I grew up without having any money. This is not true. I'm using this as an example. Mm -hmm. If I grew up with no money or my parents divorced and I was left, I went from having some stability to no stability. And I will never let go of that, that, that fear of no one will be there to take care of me. Of course, I'll be invested in wanting to work. But if I don't share that with my partner, they may never know what drives my desire. And once we have context, now we can create compassion. And where is there compassion? We can create intimacy and understanding. You know what is so interesting about that? I know that was a fictional story, but I felt my body like, ah, I understand your your character that you just made up. And then you said, when we have context, we have compassion. Can you elaborate on this, this idea of providing authentic 
I believe it would be authentic context in its ability to start creating that compassion. And I hear in a sense, it's almost a way of finally us looking without defense and be like, ah, I get you. I see you. Yeah. I have a couple that I, I worked with some years back. He was working diligently, like working overtime. I mean, he would not acknowledge that he work, worked addictively. His his wife said, you're, you know, you're a workaholic. She, on the other hand, said, I get that you make good money and I get that you work hard for us. And I get that your, I, that your motivation is to provide for us. But in the absence of you being home, I don't need your money. I didn't marry you for your money. Mm-hmm. I married you for you. And she and he, they both came into therapy and trying for him to put down working, to put down the phone, to put down his laptop or his devices, to not answer phone calls after a time of day was withdrawal. It was addictive. It was survival for him because growing up, he had to support his mom and his sisters when his father died. Once his wife understood that this was a drive to protect, this was his drive to take care of, and to never leave her vulnerable or his children vulnerable, she had greater compassion. And she could have compassion for the part of him, and that's something I'll get to in a minute when I speak about parts. She had compassion for the part of him that was protecting Mm -hmm. and that was a protector part. And she didn't see this as self-serving any longer. She saw it as, ah, okay, I get it. It's for my benefit. And she always knew that, but she didn't in a heartfelt way understand that. And he now felt seen and heard. And they began all of a sudden to no longer work against each other, but for each other. And she could help settle that anxiety that said when he was getting back into his habit, his custom, his cycle of working addictively, where they could have a word where they could both kind of stop and go, okay, get what's happening here. Mm -hmm. And now they began to work together on the problem, not on each other. It was a game changer. It was really a huge shift for them as a couple. While uh, some movies might show intimacy as a, is a sexy date night at a five-star restaurant. It, 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 to my ears, that sounds like intimacy there in that vulnerability, that connection and that being Absolutely. seen. It was so close. It was so loving. And it was really for them so beautiful. It was everything she's always wanted, actually. She got it in her ability to connect with him and he want to connect back with her in the ways that wasn't just about pumping money out. It was really so beautiful. You know, I think I'm going to assist the transition into the parts because what I'm hearing and I'm starting to become more, a lot more curious about how money can be this portal into the unseen parts of us that we've been defending and for my case, ignoring for our lives. But when we lean in and wrestle with that discomfort, potentially we start to piece together these siloed parts of us and start to feel a little of that whole self. Can you touch on the parts of us and What's happening when we talk about the parts? Yes. Oh, I can absolutely touch on this. And there's an exercise in the book called the shadow exercise. And it really is a lens into that that mirror self, this part of us that 
what is this money about? And what is our, what is the desire for working long hours for this, this husband? And what was it behind that? And what was, what is beneath the surface? And so some of our exercises in the book, an exercise that I created was the shadow exercise that we brought into the book was about seeing behind the mirror, right? Like what is below the surface and outside of purview? But to the question and to the excitement about parts, what Rick and I brought together in this book is parts work. And we are incredibly honored. Dr. Dick Schwartz, who is the creator of the internal family systems model of psychotherapy, just a wonderful supporter. I'm grateful and really honored that he was as supportive and lent a beautiful endorsement to our book and others in the field of IFS. We have integrated and brought together the parts work into this project because as you and I are talking about, there is a part of you that may want to save. There's a part of you that wants to save and part of you that wants to spend. There's a part of you that loves doing podcasts. And there's a part of you that is a financial planner. We are very complex. The aspects of ourselves, some parts that are protecting of wounded other younger parts that are on overdrive, we lend the understanding so that couples who are working on their relationship can begin to see that the intended, the well-intended parts that we all bring to our lives are like managers in our internal companies. So that when two people come together, it's not just a romantic commitment, it's a financial commitment. And I bring my company of internal parts and you bring your company of internal parts, and we are emerging our companies. And that understanding what each manager's role is and what their job is helps us all to merge well and to bring together two entities as a now new functioning business, a new functioning company. And that's what we're so excited about, to use parts work as a way to understand and conceptualize these two companies. I really like this bringing in as a the coupleship inc like these companies and uh i'm excited to get the book to really see how yeah the the, the verbiage that parts have our ifs is used as managers and again it applies very well to coupleship inc bringing these companies together my last question is one that listeners are used to i ask it with every every guest let's say that you're now at end of life however old that is that's the age but you're sitting on a front porch looking out at mountain, ocean, meadows, whatever brings you peace, and you're in complete peace, and you decide to bring out a notebook and a pen and write a letter to your children's children on what you learned about having a happy and healthy relationship with money, what would be a theme to that letter? The theme to the letter would be that if you find your fulfillment, you'll never work another day in your life. Once you find your passion, you never work again. And some people can't find passion, but whatever it is you do, as long as you are passionate about it, the result will follow. And it sounds very cliche. Both my kids, fortunately, gratefully, we were able to put them through college and they wanted to go. And they, they graduated early, shows you they're products of their parents, I suppose. <laughs> And in this particular case, my son called me one day. It was the middle of the day, which I thought was rather odd, a little concerning because no, I never get a phone call from them in the middle of the day. But he called me and he said, mom, you know how you and dad have to work to support your lifestyle? 
and I was hearing him and I didn't quite follow where we were heading yet, but I began to hear him say, and and you know how like you have to work. And I said, well, first of all, let me say that we don't work to support our lifestyle. We're very grateful and I'm very happy to hear and know that we work and live within our means. But I think from your perspective, I said to him, it's ha- it may look that way. And I said, but yes, I hear you. And what about this? And he said, well, I don't want to take the job. And the job he had was to work in consulting. And I said to him, don't take it. And he said, what do you mean don't take it? And I said, don't take the job. What will I do? I said, I don't know. That's what we'll find out. But if you take the job and you don't like it, you will have a harder time leaving because you will have decided that this is good enough and your heart's not in it. You will not be on the streets. You will not be without a home. You will not be without a roof. You are industrious. And I will make sure that, you know, we're here to help guide you. I have no doubt that should you need support, of course we'll be there, but I don't think you'll need it. He goes, well, I got a signing bonus. I said, did you spend it? He said, no. I said, well, if you had, you'll have to give it back. And if you haven't, you're still going to give it back. They'll come calling for it and that's fine. He goes, you're okay with this? And I said, not only am I okay with this, I am supporting you emotionally and with energy and with co-signing off on don't take the job. And I will tell you, Sean, that in about one month later, he called me to say, I got this most amazing job. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't what he knew he wanted. He had to work through what he didn't want Mm -hmm. to get to what was left. Children, young adults in their 20s, 30s, transitional life changes, even adults, we don't always know what we want, but we have to work through what we don't want to get to what reveals itself. And that was the case for him. And I was really so happy that he took the risk to say that to me because I could share with him that I believe in you. I will help you if you need it. I don't think you'll need it. And and I will tell you, he never did. And he hasn't. And I I would be absolutely okay to, to help if he needed it, but he didn't. Because what it gave him was permission to just go and find your passion. What a powerful story. I have a four and six-year-old. When you said he felt comfortable to take the risk, I feel like that would be my success moment as an as a parent if my child at your child's age felt safe to take the risk to tell me this as opposed to, in a way, he could have been going on his version of Wall Street in consulting, which can have similar, you know, similar dynamics from my perspective. Consulting can sometimes have that, you know, that lust and go, 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 go. Yeah, his heart wasn't in it. There was no passion in it for him, none whatsoever. And it was a job. He felt he had to graduate and take a job and get a job. And of course, you know, that's the purpose of going to college. But I mean, that moment mattered more to me than anything Mm -hmm. because it had said that I at least had helped contribute to my son's willingness to take a risk and say, this is not where my passion is. Mm -hmm. It meant a lot to me. Yeah. That I could share it. Thank you so much for sharing that. You know, even you're saying, I believe in you. Yeah. What a powerful word. It's coming from a a parent. And one can assume if you hadn't done your work, you know, you might have been like, go, go, go get it. Go get that power. Go get that control. Yeah. Go get it. You need that job. And when, Mm -hmm. of course, you're going to take a job. Who turns a job down? Yeah. 
Well, I turned jobs down because <laughs> <laughs> that was my history. When it wasn't what I wanted, I turned it down, even when I couldn't afford to, because it wasn't what I wanted. I didn't exactly know what I wanted. I just knew what I didn't want. And that's what I would finish in that journal sitting on that porch as a legacy statement. And that's part of what we do in Coupleship Inc. We have couples create their legacy and their legacy statement, which isn't what they leave behind in monetary value, but what priceless and emotional, psychological gifts they want to leave to those who they love. Yeah. What a gift is to buy the psychological traits to feel seen and heard and safe. And I really like, and, and uh, I just, I want to be respectful of your time, but I just love how you said, understanding what you didn't want can reveal what you want. And speaking of not, or turning down jobs, I'm glad you did not turn down this interview because this was fantastic. For listeners who want to know more about your work, where your upcoming book will be uh, distributed and your other books, where would you point people towards? I would point them to all online booksellers. The Coupleship Inc. will be launching probably in about a month and a half. And it is not open for pre-sale, unfortunately, yet, but it'll be probably in about a month and a half, we'll find on all online booksellers, as the same with my other books as well. They could also go to my website, which is www.debracaplincounseling.com. And they can also find me online, LinkedIn, Facebook, and I don't tweet, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't do Instagram, unfortunately, either, for better or for worse. Yeah. You're busy writing books. So, well, thank you so much. And we'll include all those in the show notes. And it's been an honor. Absolute pleasure, Sean. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Before you head out, if you can do me a favor and head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, I'd greatly appreciate it. And please do check out Deb's books. Keep your eyes open for the new book coming out in around February, March of 2023 called Coupleship Inc. It will be a fantastic read. Thank you so much. And have a great week. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write a freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life. It's just the wind in the sea.